Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Global streaming services are projected to reach over 1.5 billion subscribers in 2025. Worldwide spending on TV and film production has, has surged over $220 billion a year, with Netflix, Disney, Amazon Prime, and HBO Max alone accounting for more than $75 billion of that spend. Uh, and almost all of the spending goes towards woke, progressive-themed entertainment. By now, most of us are aware of the left's successful decades-long march through our institutions, but can we regain this ground? Are the culture wars winnable? Today, we're going to talk specifically about Hollywood and the business of film storytelling. Conservatives who have basically surrendered the culture wars often claim we can't fight back because the left is naturally more artistic and, and given to storytelling. Our side is more interested in politics and making money. Well, I don't believe that's true, and neither does my guest today, Michael Pack, who actually wrote those words, which I <laughs> borrowed for the introduction. Uh, the culture wars are winnable if we take them seriously and start by producing our own independent features and documentary films. As much as Netflix and the major Hollywood studios spend, Independently made productions have attracted globally twice as much money, almost $150 billion. So the money should be there. We just need to get into the game. Joining me to explain how this can work and we can reclaim our culture through film, and it's a big opportunity, mm. is Michael Pack, my friend, documentary filmmaker, former CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, um, he's produced over 15 award-winning films for public television, and most recently, and we're just re-releasing a show Michael and I did three years ago, most recently his, his film was Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, which is a fantastic documentary and particularly important for us to take a look at again today. So, Michael, mm -hmm. you re recently wrote a piece, I think it was in Washington Examiner, Long, what, what was the... Long Liberty. Law and Liberty, yeah, it was a terrific piece, but you basically made a, a longer case for uh, why we need to be in the game. Right, so if people want to read it, they can go to the Law and Liberty website, or my own Twitter feed has it too, Michael Pack underscore. But I think it is really important. You know, I think the culture wars are winnable. As you said in your introduction, I was briefly in the Trump administration, I think politics is actually a harder game to win. The administrative state is really dug in and civil servants have really strong protections and they're, um, they're prepared to counter fight, whereas the culture is still relatively a free market. We can make films, we can set up streaming companies, we can set up distribution companies. We have simply ceded that turf to the left, as you said in the introduction, on the assumption that they're naturally suited to it. But, but nothing could really be further from the truth. We have simply let them have it. I, I always say it's not a culture war 
when only one side has an army in the field and the other side just writes essays about how bad that army, how they don't like that army. <laughs> who, who could win a war and under I those circumstances? I probably read too many of those essays. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were, essays are written by my friends and people I like, and that's fine. But we have to be making culture, not just complaining about it. And it is not that hard to do, and we can do it. Well, the essence of the, of the and I hate this word, you need to help me find a better one, <laughs> content. Mm. And we need a better, much better word than that. But you talk about story and the need to tell stories and how that's different from PowerPoints or it's different from, um, you know, a screed where you're trying to win people over your point of view. Instead, the most effective way to win hearts and minds is, is the telling of stories. Absolutely. I mean, that has been true from time immemorial, from the first cave paintings to the Bible to today, to Shakespeare to today. I mean, that is how people learn to understand the world. And each story is a model for how the world works. You mentioned our Clarence Thomas documentary. We didn't just have a bunch of experts talking about Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence. We had him tell the story of his life. And it's a very exciting story with twists and turns. He's born in a Gullah-speaking part of um, Georgia, just outside of Savannah, English not his first language, raised by his grandfather. and. Um, then rebels against the traditions that his grandfather raises in, becomes a radical in the 60s, comes back to conservatism. I mean, he tell, it's a dramatic story that encapsulates in the story what his life means. You don't need experts to tell you. And that is the, that's the way people are more interested in finding stories, and stories are a more full picture of the world. So we need to tell those stories. I, I think our side does not do a good job, e even in my own small field of documentaries. Many of the right-of-center documentaries are just very preachy, closer to propaganda than storytelling. And the left, in my opinion, does a really good job. Their documentaries are at a very high level. So the, let's, let's dig into story. I mean, so preaching in an audience doesn't work. You, and I'm looking at your article here. Anic a series of anecdotes is not a story. And you talk about a story as something that happens to a protagonist or group of protagonists. That's right. Explain what, let's dig into that. Because I, I, I don't want to just say we need to tell stories. I want well, to understand what, a what you think a, a good story is. That's a good point. Because sometimes <clears throat> on the right, people use the rhetoric of telling stories. But then they, as, as you quoted in my article, then they just have a stream of anecdotes. You know, if, if it's, a, so... Um, you know, people hurt by a particular policy somebody doesn't like, get a series of people hurt by it. That, that's not a story. A story is something that, that somebody, there's a precipitating incident, someone takes a stand and a series of things happen. You know, Achilles refuses to fight and that starts the, in motion the Iliad or Odysseus flees Troy and takes a journey, you know, back to Ithaca and has a series of adventures on the way. I mean, that's a story. People are concerned with people, character, and, and an arc, something that happens with the beginning, middle, and end. Not a complicated idea. People intuitively understand it. But, but we, our films and documentaries, just shy away from that, and I, and I think to our detriment. Well, it, it, it somehow, you know, it, it's, it's soft, not hard facts and things like that. My favorite short story, you probably already know this, Hemingway mm. was asked to come up with the shortest story <laughs> he could. Do you remember that? I don't. I don't. Here's the story. For sale, baby shoes, 
never worn. <laughs> that is a great. That's a, that is great. Almost a haiku. That's <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I'm I'm particularly because of, you know you know Sarah and I curl up and watch old movies at at night because we like the stories they tell and they have a hero and they have a villain and there's a, there are moral lessons in there, but it's not it's not in your face. I think those old movies are another proof that that you can say you can make movies with conservative and traditional messages. Hollywood did it for 50 years. We talk about John success. Wayne and John Ford. We did, I think. And John Ford, a great example of that. I mean, and John Wayne, I mean, he became the prototypical American hero and people loved John Wayne around the world. They wanted to be like him. They came to America to taste the freedom that, that Westerns like the John Ford Westerns celebrated. Now, Hollywood movies, you know, complicated thing. They're not all right of center, but they generally were pro-family, pro-religion, pro-American, and they were hugely successful. So that proves that it can be done since one of the most successful industries in America did it for 50 years and did it successfully. I say that it's hard. Hollywood, as it's gone left since the 60s, has had trouble taking those traditional forms and twisting them to progressive messages. You have to tell anti-hero Westerns, far less appealing. They have to twist these forms to give a different message. But I, th I think fundamentally these stories are stories of heroic individuals, usually not without flaws, you know, dealing with complex things and making choices. And yeah, in Brad, Pitt, Brad Pitt, Pitt refusing to fight was he, as Achilles was... Uh, that's was, right. He, this is a very flawed character. Yeah, <laughs> Achilles is a very flawed character. <laughs> Almost always these characters are flawed. One of my favorite John Ford movies, The Searchers, John Wayne yeah. is a racist and he has to... He pursues his uh, his his uh, he pursues Natalie Wood and bring her back from the Indians and attempting to kill her because she's been polluted by the Indians and it's only through the end that he changes his mind and doesn't do that but he is so polluted that he cannot rejoin normal society but he's still a heroic figure and John Ford extols the traditional society that John Wayne is on the outskirts of it's a complex view but one that's affirming of traditional American ideas. Well, the problems I have with, with the modern stories that are told by Hollywood now is that the, is the, is the, um, the bad guys and the good guys are characterized by their labels and sort of the things they believe. Like if this person believes in client change, he's a good person. Yeah, that's right. If he believes or that's she right. believes in, uh, oh, I don't know, trans this or trans that, that's a good person if he just... So it's, it's these political positions become the way they they develop character. It doesn't develop character at all. All it says is, well, this, these are just the tropes that they want to toss out. Well, that's right. I mean, Hollywood is so has become so politicized in a narrow way that there are a lot of Hollywood dramas. The Good Fight, for instance, comes to mind. But there are many where you can really tell who's good or bad just by their political positions. Now, you told a story, this, The Last 600 Meters. Yeah. And that was a documentary. Did you make that in 2004, 2005? We made it, we finished, I think, in 2008. <clears throat> yeah. It was about battles in Iraq in 2004, Fallujah and Najaf, the biggest battles of the war. And we told the story in the words of the people who fought there, from privates and corporals up to the one-star generals that were in the field. It was not about whether the war was good or bad. It told the story of these battles through the... The, this, through the actions of these men and women. And 
Oddly enough, that is the only film in my entire career that PBS has refused to air, um, even though public broadcasting was its principal funder, CPB was its main funder. They felt that it was too pro-military, that we portrayed these young Marines and Army and Air Force people in too positive a light. They accused me of picking and choosing and using central casting, but I did not. I had to go with the people who actually fought these battles that the military let me film. So that one has never aired, but, but I think it's a case in point for how conservatives think. So for PBS that didn't want to air it, it was political in a way they did not like, too pro-military. But when we went around to raise money for it, conservatives said to us, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have um, a, a clear enough message. It doesn't have a call to action. Like we're not told whether the war was good or bad. We're not told what to do. So we can't fund it. We would only fund something that was narrowly along the lines that we wanted to do. Whereas for PBS, they saw that it had a point. It was a point they didn't like. But for conservatives, they couldn't sort it out. They wanted you to say, we end the film by saying, this war is good, you know, you should support, you know, George W. Bush, or the war is evil. But this was a portrait of what it's like to fight these wars. And people like General Mattis that had been in these battles thought it was a one of the best films about war he had ever seen, and you know, true to the ground truth. Well, his and, quote and, his quote is great. He said it's uncaptured by politics or ideology, reveals the most bruising ethical environment on earth, mm. and the character of the young men that our nation sends in harm's way. It's infantry. And so it it, it Yes. It, yeah. The high praise from somebody who knows. Yeah. But we, and we are still struggling to get that released, actually, Bill. We still have it, it has never been released. I feel I owe it to the men and women whose stories I told to get it released. So we're still looking to find a way to give it a broad release. You know, we need to raise some money for promotion and advertising. Maybe we can get it in movie theaters. I think now that we're, now that the war in Ukraine has rerouted America's attention on these kind of battles, it might be, something to look at now. But, you know, these people fight our wars. We need to tell their stories. You know, the, the stories that came out of Iraq were all, you know, Haditha and Abu Ghraib. It may be a good time because if you... Oh, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Michael Pack, uh, extremely talented uh, documentary filmmaker, and we're talking about what it is to make a good documentary, in particular focusing on story rather than ideology. And it seems to be what we all respond to, left or right. Uh, but you mentioned release. That's a, I wanted to get into that because mm. making a thing, I, and I produced, I, I produced two, I actually produced two movies, Exec produced a third. Mm. And this was 10 years ago. And the, 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 the conventional paradigm was you make this thing and it costs two, three, five million dollars or whatever it takes to make it. And then you have to, release it, distribute it, produce it. And the, the paradigm is you got to get it, you have to get it into theaters. And that's breathtakingly mm. expensive, particularly when you've got to do the ads, the P&A and that sort of thing. Sure. And the distributor gets a big cut and the movie theaters get 50% of the ticket <laughs> sales. And by the time right. you're done, you're wondering, why are we doing <laughs> this? <laughs> and then you had the streaming sales or the DVD sales, and that's become, you know, that that that's a, that's an art form, I suppose it can happen. Is that still the paradigm we need to think about? I mean, if you look at what's happening in the writing world with Substack, 
That's where right. authors are going directly to an audience for paid subscriptions. And they're not using, I'll switch industries now, they're not using the brand of a, of a Hollywood company or, or a distribution company. They're, instead, it's just one-off. It's, it's appealing to be able to go direct to the consumer, like yeah. Substack does. And I know people in the documentary film business that are trying that model. It, it, you mentioned the P&A, the, the prints and advertising. It's very hard to get people to your site. It helps if you're on Substack, if you have a big reputation, if you're an influencer, if you've already got a big following on, on social media. It's hard to do with the one-off documentaries. I, I think at the moment, it's still controlled by these big services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, you know, uh, HBO. And so people I know, those sort of left-wing filmmakers that are friends of mine, who I think are very talented and successful, they usually have a deal with a, either a major distributor that's sort of on the left, like a <clears throat> participant or Magnolia, yeah. and or a contract already in place from an HBO or, a, say, Amazon. So they don't worry about producing it first and then getting it distributed. That's a sort of tough road to go. Our model had always been to have a plan on a PBS release. I mean, one reason we were always happy to do that, I'm not sure if it's still possible, is that we want our films to reach the middle of America, where I think the battle for the future lies. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of conservative films are, you know, preach to the choir, an important thing to do. It's not, a, not bad. But we need to reach people who are undecided or not sure or confused. The Clarence Thomas film, we hoped the people who watched it were not people who were already Clarence Thomas fans. What's the point of that? But people who wonder and don't know and had their doubts about Anita Hill and remember the hearings or maybe this current news about Clarence Thomas and want to know more. So those are the people that are sort of important to reach. And PBS still reaches a big national audience. So our film via PBS, a few million people, you know, not, so that's, you know, at least a big number. And we're able to get that. I, don't, I hope that we still can. PBS is really, and CPB are obliged by law to reflect a diverse, the diversity of views in the American people. I think they could do a better job and NPR surely could do a better I'm sure job. They, I'm sure they pay a lot of attention. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, the law is the law. They can be held to it by you know, members of but Congress. But you have to have an energized Congress and energized populace to say, look, we really care about the culture. And you look at all the, all the cultural organizations, you know, the president gets to appoint members to each of these cultural groups yeah, right. and they're all funding these organizations and you've got not only those cultural groups, you've got the Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, um, all funding the documentaries on the left. It, it's sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what the law is, but they certainly don't seem to feel like they've got to have equal opportunities on both sides. They, they do not. So, yeah, there's a vast amount of pool. I say in my, my essay that the, the, the left has been sending, spending at least tens of billions of dollars on documentaries alone. You had the, the bigger number they spend on entertainment all told and have been spending tens of billions since the 60s, through the long, since the long march of the institutions that you mentioned in your introduction. They're spending tens of billions and have done it for 50 years. On our side, we spend at most tens of millions, <clears throat> a thousand times less. I've been the beneficiary of those tens of millions, so I'm appreciative. 
but you can't win a battle where the other side is a thousand times bigger. And they built up all these institutions and an entire network of things, not even included in the, in the dollar number. Film schools across the country are all essentially educating mm -hmm. progressive Well, you make makers. the point that every college now has some sort of film That's school, right. film department, one. and there are almost 4,000 colleges. That's right. So what are they, how many people are they graduating a year? You know, something like 200 to 400,000 wannabe so, left-wing filmmakers. So, how, so many, how many conservative heads of those departments have you met? I have never met a single right-of-center <laughs> teacher at any film school ever. Okay. Not a single one. So, and, and now they're very out front in many of these places about wanting to teach, wanting their students to go out and be advocates, not just journalists, just like in journalism schools, but even more so. So out of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids, the, 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 you can cream off the five or five percent or so that have talent, where there's no, there's no funnel for for filmmakers on the right, and it's the same thing in funding sources. You you, you were mentioning the left wing foundation. So there's a pool of nonprofit funding for left progressive filmmakers, as you say, Ford and MacArthur and. Um, <clears throat> all the others um and it's as you hundreds of millions a year at least so those people have that funding we have a again you know a, less than a hundredth of that so those films can go on pbs or go it where like our films and that are in the sort of non-profit world and there's a huge pool of for-profit money out in hollywood for for supporting these films and companies that are that are out front about their wanting to, to spread progressive messages, like Participant, started by Jeff Skull, a billionaire, tech billionaire, whose politics are out front. He, it, this is America. Anyone has any right to start a film company with any politics they want. I do not think there's anything evil or wrong about it. I just don't think we're doing it too. Why should just one side be doing it? He is, everyone has a right to make films that express their views. It's The problem is that all the views are expressed are all kind of similar. You know, we need to do that too. It strikes me there's a big opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. I sometimes say it's a little bit analogous to Fox News, the beginning of Fox News, where supposedly Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch said, well, if we do a right of center news organization, the others will split the left of center audience and we'll have the other half of the country, the right of center, all to ourselves. And it's like that in this sort of entertainment documentary world. There's just, it's all on one side. And at, at conservatively speaking, you know, a third to half of the country are, do not have those values. So yes, there's a huge underserved audience, enormous. Well, we need to figure out a way to get, you know, as I said, I've made a couple of movies and it's expensive, it, 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 but... It, it's fun. It's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's more it's, fun than it's, politics. It's a lot why, more fun than politics. I don't know why conservatives and, are and veer to that. The actors are all pretty good looking, and you know <laughs> the creatives are fun to work with, and you know it's nice to be on a on a movie set. And, it, and I think somehow we got to. That's part of the reason I wanted to chat with you about this. I think we need to convey that this is not like taking your castor oil. That's right. It's the opposite. That's right. <laughs> it's putting away your castor oil and having a glass of champagne. Like, like Kenny, you, he's our director. You'd be happy to make a film. <laughs> okay, all right. So there's, we, so we've got this overwhelming monopoly 
and there's very few chinks in the armor. We need to figure out, and I think the key, as you think, is is great, great story. It is. It's a and key. getting that out and getting people excited about funding but, it. How but, do we? Well, one thing that we're doing that is a small effort in that direction is we we have launched a new company, Palladium Pictures, to do long form documentaries like the Clarence Thomas film. But it also we're starting an incubator run by my son Thomas that will train libertarian, conservative, right of center filmmakers that, you know, since, as we said, there are so few and no film schools cater to them. So we're going to give grants. Where's it based? It's based here in the D.C. area. In D.C. area, okay. And and we'll have have info about it on our website, palladiumpictures.com, in a month or two. So you have to, viewers will have to write it down and remember. But we're going to give grants to young filmmakers to make short films, five or 10 minute films. They'll have to apply, they'll have to prove, they'll have to have done something. So they're not just out of film school, prove that they can do it and have an idea, a story idea with a hook. And we will, my wife and I who run the company will executive produce and make sure it adheres to our standards and follows our- What's what's an example of a hook? Well, uh, I mean, a hook would be because we not, don't want to be pedantic, but how do you get? How do you? But, how do you decide this is, this is a good song or this is a good movie but concept? You, I, I, by that I mean only you have to have not just you have you have to have more than just a story. You have to have a, an idea. You have to have the a, be able to make the credible case that you can tell it. For example, in the Clarence Thomas film, it's not just that I had the idea of telling Clarence. T- Thomas's story. I was able to get Clarence Thomas to agree to tell it. So, so I had that asset, you might say, by the end. And you have to have, you know, the 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 last six hundred meters, the other one we discussed, the one about the the war in Iraq. I had already found, for instance, this guy Lucian Reed, who was a brilliant still photographer who had great photographs of these battles and was willing to license them to me. I mean, I had some of the film assets that you need to put the film together. You can't, it can't just be a great idea. I mean, that's the difference between a fil- writing a book where all you need is the great idea mm-hmm. and a film. So, so you- what do you need to assemble when you're sitting there? You think, gee, I've got a concept for this. You did Alexander Hamilton, you did George Washington. Yeah, that's right. What did you, what did you say? Okay, I want to tell this story. What, what were the elements that you wanted to? Well, because I want this also to be a how-to show. Yeah. So for all you at home that want to get in the film business, this is the man <laughs> to learn from. Well, in documentaries, once you start having a film, you have to deal with the problems that that film and approach puts before you. And if you haven't done that, then you're not a filmmaker. Like the Hamilton Washington film. What who cares about a new film about Hamilton and Washington? They are vastly covered. So it's unlike the last six hundred meters or Clarence Thomas. So we needed to come up with an approach that was different. And we did. Our approach was to not only have a bunch of professors and academics tell the story or have a bunch of kind of dramatic recreations but try to look for the reflection of that person in the present. So when we did the Hamilton film, we made that film in 2008. As you well know, Bill, the world was undergoing a financial crisis. I do remember I wasn't paying attention to movies at the time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I was thinking about the capital markets it, melting down. 
So <laughs> Hamilton dealt with the first financial crisis in the 1790s. Yeah. So we went to the then Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, and asked him what he thought of Hamilton's handling of the crisis in 1790. U.S. Bank in 2008? Yes. And then we asked him what did he think Hamilton would think of the way he was handling the current crisis. But a, a, another and another one that we did was we is that in the film in I the film seen that one. okay in the so film and, and then Hamilton as you know died in a duel over honor so we thought who today has gunfights over honor or fights over honor so we talked to former gang members who had been in gunfights over their honor and oh, asked them what they thought of the Hamilton Burr duel and oh that's interesting and, you know would they do the <laughs> same thing and every last one of them I mean most of us think oh dueling that's so stupid but that this was not their point of view. Once Burr dissed them, Hamilton had to fight. They thought for sure. <laughs> it was no question. Uh, the thing they thought was crazy was actually Hamilton, due to his Christian beliefs, fired in the air, wasted his shot. That they thought insane. You don't do that. that, that you do not do that. So they had their perspective. Hank Paulson had his perspective. We interviewed, it's a film where we interviewed Rupert Murdoch. We interviewed Gore Vidal. We interviewed Larry Flint people not ordinarily brought together in one film and surely not on PBS. So we had a unique approach. Yeah. We had a unique approach. Otherwise, why do another film about Hamilton or Washington? We want to do another one in that series on Thomas Jefferson, who is really under attack today from the left and the right. And the whole idea, the, the Enlightenment values that and, he, and that's called rediscovering uh, Thomas uh, Alexander Hamilton or uh, Thomas George. Yes, they're all rediscovering. Rediscovering okay. George Washington, rediscovering Alexander Hamilton, and now we want to do rediscovering Thomas Jefferson. Oh, so that's on the to-do list. On the to-do okay. list. Yeah. Because, he, you know, I mean, it's not just that he's under attack for being a slave owner and ha having yeah. an affair with his Sally Hemings and father and children, yeah. but the Declaration itself, his greatest single achievement, is under attack. Do we really believe all men are created equal, and what do we mean by that? And should statues of Thomas Jefferson be allowed? Should the U, should UVA still honor him? I mean, he's under attack. The founding is under attack. It's a, he is a, a flawed man. I'm personally more of a Federalist, a Hamiltonian than a Jeffersonian, but I think he's a great man and wrote the single greatest political document in American history, the Declaration of Independence. It's time to look at him. We're coming up to the 250th anniversary of the Declaration. We hope to tell that story in the mode of these other two stories, not just another biopic of Jefferson. So that's the idea. Of, we, so we have something else other than just to tell his story. We have an angle into it. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, I worry about our monuments in Washington. Uh, I mean, you look at the Jefferson Memorial. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's vulnerable. It, it is. I mean, it is. Well, that's the French Revolution. We did a show with Stella Morabito called The Weaponization of Loneliness, which is an interesting... And she, she harkens back to how the a totalitarian regime, somebody who wants to control society, begins by destroying its symbols mm -hmm. and its heroes and rewrites its history. And it's a matter of isolation. And they all have that in common. I mean, uh, the French Revolution, Robespierre... Um, they toppled as thousands of statues. They took over the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral and turned it into the Temple of Reason. Right. And But then for those of us who don't lose hope because the French Revolution had something called the Thermidor, <laughs> at which point the French decided this was not a good idea and they rose up against it. Maybe, maybe our filmmaker could, can be part of that Thermidor. 
Maybe, although I don't want to have another Napoleon, exactly. Um, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> that didn't work out too well either. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a good predictor of the future. Other people specialize in that, but it's hard to believe that the progressive woke movement further and further left can go on forever, and I hope it can't. Coming back to our our issue, we got the incubator, and you have funding for that? Is that yes, uh, we have funding for that. And so if I'm a young filmmaker, wannabe filmmaker, we find you on the website. Or yes. Right? And yes. you have to move to Washington to make no. your movie. You and can make it any place you want. We're sort of thinking we'd focus on the United States, but yes, anywhere in the United States. So the production values, the costs, though, I mean, with, with iPhones and that sort of thing, it seems like the barriers to make a film are not nearly as high as they used to be. In a way, that's true. But although when, you when it comes time to shoot a film, it's sort of like writing. It's not as if the cost of pens are high or even laptops are high. It's the ability to write is rare. And when it comes time to hire a cameraman, the ones that have a great eye and can shoot are rare too. So it, it's not as it, but, but surely the barriers are lower. So we will fund these films probably up to like $25,000, not that much. But we think they'll go to people who already have small production companies and are trying to move up and have done so what maybe. Do you, what do you, I, do, I don't want to dig too deeply into the craft, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> What's a good cameraman look for? Well, so... Because you've worked with dozens now. I've worked with a lot. There, there are never that many. You know, there are hundreds of people who can have equipment and can shoot them and know how to use them technically. But we have, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, it, you, depending on what you're shooting, you need a different kind of cameraman. For example, um, in the, I think our cameraman, James Callanan, did a great job in the Clarence Thomas film. He made the, the, the film is based on that long interview with Justice Thomas, who looks right in the camera and tells his story. So most of the film is him talking. So James did a great job of lighting it and making it look good, and he has a brilliant eye, and it took a lot of equipment to make him look good, and we rented a studio here, and he, and he did a great job with the recreations that, that we shot, too, the, the boat going through the, the marshes. Other cameramen that I've worked with are great at cinema verite, at following people around. For instance, we did a documentary where we followed Newt Gingrich around in 1998, from when he started as speaker, impeached the president, lost seats in the midterm, resigned. That must have been frenetic. It was frenetic. And it's, I am internally <laughs> grateful for Newt for not kicking us out and letting us keep filming. Um, <laughs> and it was, not, it was a difficult time for him, He's, he, uh, but he, he let us shoot. But that cameraman knew, like, we're moving around with Newt in a big crowd, and... We're only ones following him. The other news people are huddling up elsewhere. But we had to, he, he knew to, where Newt was going to go. He was where he, he was ready where Newt was moving to before Newt got there so he could shoot Newt approaching. I can't really do that. I don't have this, this kinesthetic sense of mm -hmm. bodies in motion. I mean, I was always right behind Newt and he was like ahead and he would be, or he'd be in another spot where the, the angle was good ahead of time. He's thinking ahead. So that's a different kind of cameraman. You know, not like a, a traditional Hollywood cameraman where the sets are all, you know, you have plenty of time. You're in control of everything. That's a cameraman that knows how to follow action where you're not in control. And that's sort of an instinct. And you have to have a sound person 
who's with the cameraman so that you can, you know, and figures out when to be with the cameraman or when to be with Newt. Because if you want to get Newt talking, so you have to be with Newt, so you can't actually be with the cameraman, but you can't be in the frame if you're a sound man. You can't have your boom in the frame. So these guys- Do you guys, remember the old movies from the 30s where they had the, the microphone yeah, dipping right. down? <laughs> where they hid right. the microphone in the bush next to the, uh, next to the, next you, to the lovers? It can still happen, so. <laughs> So I, I, I am digging dip because you know I have spent some time in the business and and the sound person, sound man, whatever. Uh, what are, what are the characteristics of a good one of those? Well, for that in the very I think one, of sound is the most one of the most important. Sound is uh, really important, and documentary filmmakers traditionally neglect sound, mm -hmm. even though in documentaries, especially, sound is more important. In the Clarence Thomas interview although I think James did a great job lighting it, if you couldn't hear Clarence Thomas talking, what would be the point of the interview? Um, so yeah, sound is hard. Y you have to, it depends again on the kind of filming, but the you have to, sound people need to know when to tell the director that the sound is so bad, you've got to find a way to redo it, e even at the cost of stopping the action. That's mm -hmm. a, tri a tricky thing. As I say, when they're following action, they have to be—they have to follow the action from an audio point of view and know where the cameraman is. Um, so, they—you know—they have to be sort of unobtrusive too, right? They can't be in your face. So, uh, and the, you know, which mic to, they have to have a good array of mics and know which mic to pick, what can be picked up later in post-production. You can add a lot of sound in a way you even easier than you can with picture later. Post-production is so much fun. Post-production is a lot adding, of fun. Adding the sound. Yeah, right. You can so, always do that, sound yeah, effects. I, I'm going total geek here. <laughs> what about the editing? So I think editing, maybe in documentaries... Because very few people get a chance to talk to a filmmaker about how they actually do it. And so well, that's where I'm... That's why I'm <laughs> wandering into this... Uh, I think editor most important of all jobs in documentaries. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. Um, and and this is a this goes to the earlier themes we were talking about earlier. So it's not hard to learn how to use editing software. Most people can learn it in about a week or so. You know, Avid or Premiere, the standard ones. But knowing how to cut and how to structure a film is challenging, and it's particularly hard in a two-hour film or a miniseries. So people who've cut a lot of five-minute pieces don't really know how to cut longer ones. And mm -hmm. people on our side aren't really trained in that. So the great documentary editors are very progressive, woke people. They're the ones that have done it. They've, they're the ones that have edited Academy Award-winning documentaries. They're the ones that have done a lot of long form. So it, it's very hard. In my life, I've only found maybe two editors that you could call right of center out of the maybe a hundred or so I've mm -hmm. had. It's pretty rare. And they try to hide it. Or how can they, they have to keep working. Well, it's it's a, there's big career risk. Big career risk. And they have to keep, you know, they're gig workers, so they can't, there's yeah. no career <clears throat> in only editing right of center films. So they have to be able to work for, you know, regular, you know, ABC, NBC, you know, HBO, as well as for us. But it's, it's challenging, and it depends what different directors ask editors to do. I do not believe that editors can structure a piece, which is often what they say they do. You have to, it's the director's job to do that. But the editor has to give it shape. 
Um, you know, they have to find, you know, realize that vision and and pick shots. In the case so of so, you spend a lot of time sitting next to the editor. Uh, it, it took over a year to edit yeah. the Clarence Thomas film. Yeah, and the editor who was in New York, I'm in D.C. I went to New York for one week a month, and she came to D.C. for one week a month. So yeah. for two weeks out of the four, I was sitting with her. And when I wasn't, I was sending her notes every day. Um, but they have to have a memory of all this footage. Unlike with feature films, you have this huge, huge amount of footage, usually in films, hundreds of hours. And, and who, so they know what's there in a way that even I do not know what's there. So they have to have that sense of mm -hmm. where, what to get and where to find it, or even what else is out there. You know, what other solutions to sort of problems that you have, you know, in the structure or in the flow of the film. I mean, the, the, the key, another key thing, and this is related to the story theme, is the sort of rhythm and pacing. You know, you know, stories need to have a pace. I believe Ken Burns is a great filmmaker. I like many of his films. I think his films have a pacing problem. They're all the same pace. They're all like this, flat. They don't rise to climaxes. They don't descend. You could come in at any time and it's sort of moving along. I mean, that's his style. And obviously it works for him, he gets a big audience. But I believe you need to build to a climax and go down and then build up. And you need to, I think the audience needs that kind of rhythm. So that's a story related thing, rhythm, that is less needed if you're writing an essay or, or, or not doing mm -hmm. a story. So with the Clarence Thomas film, we had to decide what were the peaks where we were gonna spend a lot of time and how would the music clue the audiences in to where you were in the peaks and and how to pace the editing. This I'm sort of going back to the editing. How the what how how to make the editing pacing clue people in to mm -hmm. that, that rhythm too. Well there's a famous story about Alfred Hitchcock where he he said, let me explain editing to you and how this reaction shots work. And he said, let's imagine there's a picture of Cary Grant staring out a window in an apartment building down in a park. And there's Cary Grant smiling. And he then cut to a picture of a young woman, on, you know, treating her baby very well. And then he cut back to Gary or Cary, and he's smiling. Same shot of Carrie, yeah. and then instead you cut to the uh, a nanny <laughs> abusing the baby and doing, you know, doing all sorts of terrible things. You cut back to Gary smiling. Yeah, right. All of a sudden you've got a villain. Right. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. The way you get reaction shots and the way you build, build, build a scene with that, with that editing, I don't think people are really conscious. That's of. right. So there are a lot of manipulative techniques in film and in documentaries, yeah. editing, music, where the audience doesn't know that they're being led, where they sort of do with very stententious, over-the-top narration. I mean, that's the, the, the crudest way to lead people. But yes, there are ways to do that. So yeah. you have to be, I mean, in editing, you have to be, you know, you want to move the story, but you have to also be, in documentaries, you have to be true to the reality. I mean, if Cary Grant really liked this baby, it wouldn't be fair to do the cut where he's smiling. Well, Val, it was Alfred Hitchcock's story, not yeah, mine. Sure, sure. But, but, but <laughs> he, he cast him in six films. So he... he's, I, I, he's great in those Hitchcock films. Yeah. But the, 
But I mean, he, he, Hitchcock, can say whatever he wants about a Cary Grant character. He isn't limited by reality, but we make but documentary are. makers are. Yeah. So I, 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 I hope everybody finds this as interesting <laughs> as I do, but very rarely do you get to talk to an artist about how they actually make their craft. <laughs> and you know, I think that's one of the things that's missing when you go to a museum, for example. You see a great painting, and I don't really want to know the story of the person who made the painting. I want to know how they made it. Mm. And that's, I think, interesting. So the, the incubator you're starting will be a place where people can learn the deeper aspects of making this. That's right. And it's unappreciated. And, and you know, the thing I want to emphasize is let's forget about art, although let's not. Let's forget about politics, although it's not. There's a lot of money in this business if you do it right. That's true. And there are billions of dollars that are going into this. Like uh, Silver Lake Partners is uh, one of the big private equity firms. They, they just put $500 million with uh, Shadowbox Studios to mm. build sound stages. Mm. And they're building, um, I don't know how many of them, I think they've got 40, 65 sound stages they're building around the country. And it's not just in Hollywood, it's in Atlanta. Mm. All these states have got some, some film uh, production incentives. And so the, the, the ability to take advantage of, of, of a more professional uh, setting with all the equipment and the talent that comes with that, it's growing. It is growing. And it's definitely getting more dispersed around the country, too. Absolutely. People are, a lot of creatives, even in Hollywood, are fleeing California for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. For one thing. So where um, would the new Hollywood be? We've already, we've already got New York, Toronto, Atlanta. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's Nashville, there's Texas, there's Florida. Okay. I mean... But, but the larger point of it, this is not something you got to go to, to Los Angeles to do. You can do it from a lot of other places. That's true. Um, the thing that I, I think progressives have in Los Angeles is a community of similarly thinking people, which is a great asset if you're already woke and progressive. There is no such thing on the right. But, but not all artistic... So there's our opportunity. Yeah. We need to figure out a place where we can develop Indeed. a... Uh, a critical mass of like-minded filmmakers. That's right. I think that, that that it would be a potential magnet to them. That is really true. Of course, you live in Chevy Chase. I don't quite see that happening in Chevy Chase. I, I, I don't either. <laughs> I, I do not either. We, we stand out in Chevy Chase. So I've wandered us into the weeds on this. We're, we're, help me out. Let's, let's get into the big picture about Michael Pack and what you're doing now and what we ought to do next uh, to see... Uh, really high-quality stories being told as documentaries. Well, we are continuing to make these long-form uh, documentaries, and we have The Incubator. We hope to do re-release or release the last 600 meters. But I think the big picture is I would like to see people who share our values be more engaged in culture. I, as, as you said in the introduction, I think it's true, and we said earlier, it's a winnable battle. It is. And as you say, it's a fun battle, and, and, but it's winnable. But it, it isn't winnable if you don't put the time, money, energy, and creativity in it. I've gone to so many conservative events where they talk only about politics and business. And I went to one where I said, well, why don't you do something on culture? And this group, well known to all of us, said, well, we did that five years ago. <laughs> I mean, and so we took care of it. But, but you know. We did a panel on that. Yeah, we had a panel on that. <laughs> we have to take it seriously. We have to celebrate the, the creatives on our side, which we yeah. don't do very no, much, no. left us that endlessly, you know, to their credit. 
I mean, a lot of it really is simply doing what the left does on our side. And not saying this, and I am not saying there's anything wrong with what they're doing. It's a free market, and they're utilizing it for their beliefs as they should. We need to take a page from them in many, many of these areas. And I think if there is more of a, a group, a concerted effort, it's easier to do things. Like it's very hard to do one film at a time, as you, your oh, own story. Oh, it's very tough. But if you have a whole ecosystem yeah. with distributors and specialty, um, specialty distributors and exhibitors and uh, talent agencies and um, distribution companies and production companies, if there's an entire network of them, it's sort of it's easier. And then if you have a distributor who's representing 12 excellent films that are of a conservative sort, it's a lot easier than selling one at a time. It's crazy to sell one at a time. It's very hard. So we would benefit from bigger effort. I mean, it would grow. It would snowball. It, sure. it would not be linear. As you, we just said a few minutes ago, even just a community of, of like-thinking people would, would, would help, you know, that would feed off each other. We really need, as a, as a movement, even though it's, not, it's a very loose and you know, contentious movement, but as a movement, we need to be engaged in culture, as we are in politics, as we are in business, as we are in economics, as we are in law. We need to do it in culture, and we need to do it in a big enough way. Not on, I, I, look, I do what I can do, but I'm only a small company. We need to do it in a way bigger way yeah. to scale. This has been the Bill Walton Show, and I, mm -hmm. I thank you for indulging me in my fascination <laughs> with the uh, with the movie business. Talking with the great, great filmmaker Michael Pack, who's also got a long biography of other things, like actually being president of the Claremont Institute and a few <laughs> other things like that along the way. Um, but I, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Michael because we do really need to think about culture, and we need to think about getting to scale. And we need to think about telling stories, and it's totally within our grasp. And maybe the most important takeaway ought to be, having been involved in this a little bit, it's a lot of fun. Storytelling, interesting people, interesting things. It's, it's, uh, it's right up anyone's alley who's got a bent for it. So if you're so inclined, Michael, where will we find you? Well, you can go to palladiumpictures.com. Okay which is our website, still under construction. For our older films, you can go to manifoldproductions.com, M-A-N-I-F-O-L-D, productions.com. And my Twitter feed, you see our, my various articles on this, is Michael Pack underscore, or at Michael Pack underscore. Okay, well, thanks for joining. And uh, as always, you can find us on all the major podcasts and other platforms, Rumble, YouTube. We're on Substack, uh, and we're on CPAC now, and on Monday nights, and we'll be adding some other platforms for distribution. So send us your ideas about stories you'd like to hear us tell or people you'd like us to chat with, and we'll, uh, we'll work on those. So uh, thanks. This has been The Bill Walton Show, and see you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page and send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.